Chapter One of the Silent Barrier. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mary Herndon Bell. The Silent Barrier by Lewis Tracy. Chapter One: The Wish. Mail in? Yes, sir. Just arrived. What name? Charles K. Spencer. The letter clerk seized a batch of correspondence and sorted it with nimble fingers. The form of the question told him that Spencer was interested in letters stamped for the greater part with bland presentments of bygone presidents of the United States. In any event, he would have known by long experience of the type that the well-dressed, straight-limbed, strong-faced young man on the other side of the counter was an American. He withdrew four missives from the bundle. His quick eyes saw that three bore the Denver postmark, and the fourth hailed from Leadville. "'That is all at present, sir,' he said. "'Would you like your mail sent to your room in future, or shall I keep it here?' "'Right here, please, in number twenty slot.' I could receive a reply by cable while I was going and coming along my corridor. The clerk smiled deferentially. He appreciated not only the length of the corridor, but the price paid by the tenant of a second-floor suite overlooking the river. "'Very well, sir,' he said, glancing again at Spencer. "'I will attend to it.' And he took a mental portrait of the man who could afford to hire apartments that ranked among the most expensive in the hotel." Obviously, the American was a recent arrival. His suite had been vacated by a Frankfurt banker only three days earlier, and this was the first time he had asked for letters. Even the disillusioned official was amused by the difference between the two latest occupants of number 20. Herr Bomberger, a tub of a man, bald-headed and bespeckled, and this alert, sinewy youngster with the clean-cut features of a Greek statue, and the brilliant, deep-set, earnest eyes of one to whom thought and action were alike familiar. Spencer, fully aware that he was posing for a necessary picture, examined the dates on his letters, nipped the end off a green cigar, helped himself to a match from a box tendered by a watchful boy, crossed the entrance hall, and descended a few steps leading to the inner foyer and restaurant. At the foot of the stairs he looked about for a quiet corner. The luncheon hour was almost ended, Groups of smokers and coffee-drinkers were scattered throughout the larger room, which widened out below a second short flight of carpeted steps. The smaller anteroom in which he stood was empty, save for a few people passing that way from the restaurant, and he decided that a nook near a palm-shaded balcony offered the retreat he sought. He little dreamed that he was choosing the starting point of the most thrilling adventure in a life already adventurous that the soft carpet of the embankment hotel might waft him to scenes not within the common scope. That is ever the way of true romance. Your knight-errant may wander in the forest for a day or a year. He never knows the moment when the enchanted glade shall open before his eyes. Nay, he scarce has seen the weeping maiden bound to a tree ere he has called in to couch his lance and ride a tilt at the fire-breathing dragon. It was so when men and maids dwelt in a young world. It is so now, and it will be so till the crack of doom. Manners may change, and costume, 
but hearts filled with the wine of life are not to be altered. They are fashioned that way, and the world does not vary, else Eve might regain paradise, and all the fret and fume have an end. Charles K. Spencer, then, would certainly have been the most astonished, though perhaps the most self-possessed man in London, had some guardian sprite whispered low in his ear what strange hazard lay in his choice of a chair. If such whisper were vouchsafed to him, he paid no heed. Perhaps his occupancy of that particular corner was preordained. It was inviting, secluded, and upholstered backwash in the stream of fashion. So he sat there, nearly stunned a waiter by asking for a glass of water, and composed himself to read his letters. The waiter hesitated. He was a Frenchman, and feared he had not heard aright. "'What sort of water, sir?' he asked. "'Vichy, Saint-Galmeyer, Apollinaris?' Spencer looked up. He thought the man had gone. "'No, none of those,' he said. "'Just plain, unemotional water. Oh, naturel, straight from the pipe. "'The microbladen fluid that runs off London tiles most days. "'I haven't been outside the hotel during the last hour, "'but if you happen to pass the door, "'I guess you'll see the kind of essence I mean, "'dripping off umbrellas. "'If you don't keep it in the house, "'try to borrow a policeman's cape "'and shoot a quart into a decanter.' "'The quelled waiter hurried away and brought a carafe. "'Spencer professed to be so pleased with his rare intelligence "'that it gave him a shilling.' Then he opened the envelope with the Leadville postmark. It contained a draft of 205 pounds, 15 shillings, 11 pence, and the accompanying letter from a firm of solicitors showed that the remittance of $1,000 was the moiety of the proceeds of a clean-up on certain tailings taken over by the purchasers of the Battle Mountain Tunnel. The sum was not a large one, but it seemed to give its recipient such satisfaction that the movement of chairs on the floor of the big room just beneath failed to draw his attention from the lawyer's statement. A woman's languid, well-bred voice broke in on this apparently pleasant reverie. "'Shall we sit here, Helen?' "'Anywhere you like, dear. It is all the same to me. Thanks to you, I am passing an afternoon in Wonderland. I find my surroundings so novel and entertaining that I should still be excited if you were to put me in the refrigerator.' The eager vivacity of the second speaker, the note of undiluted and almost childlike glee with which she acknowledged that a visit to a luxurious hotel was a red-letter day in her life, caused the man to glance at the two young women who had unconsciously disturbed him. Evidently they had just risen from luncheon in the restaurant, and meant to dispose themselves for a chat. It was equally clear that each word they uttered in an ordinary conversational tone must be audible to him. They were appropriating chairs which would place the plumes of their hats within a few inches of his feet. When seated, their faces would be hidden from him, save for a possible glimpse of a profile as one or other turned toward her companion. But for a few seconds he had a good view of both, and he was young enough to find the scrutiny to his liking. At the first glance the girl who was acting as hostess might be deemed the more attractive of the pair. She was tall, slender, charmingly dressed, and carried herself with an assured elegance that hinted of the stage. Spencer caught a glint of cornflower-blue eyes beneath long lashes, 
and a woman would have deduced from their color the correct explanation of a blue sunshade, a blue straw hat, and a light cape of myosotis blue silk that fell from shapely shoulders over a white lace gown. The other girl, she who answered to the name of Helen, though nearly as tall and quite as graceful, was robed so simply in muslin that she might have provided an intentional contrast. In the man's esteem she lost nothing thereby. He appraised her by the fine contour of her oval face, the wealth of glossy brown hair that clustered under her hat, and the gleam of white teeth between lips of healthy redness. Again, had he looked through a woman's eyes, he would have seen how the difference between Bond Street and Kilburn as shopping centers might be sharply accentuated. But that distinction did not trouble him. Beneath a cold exterior he had an artist's soul, and Helen met an ideal. "'Pretty as a peach,' he said to himself, and he continued to gaze at her. Indeed, for an instant he forgot himself, and it was not until she spoke again that he realized how utterly oblivious were both girls of his nearness. "'I suppose everybody who comes here is very rich,' was her rather awe-stricken comment. Her companion laughed. "'How nice of you to put it that way. It makes me feel quite important. I lunch or dine or sup here often, and the direct inference is that I am rolling in wealth. Well, dear, you earn a great deal of money.' I get twenty pounds a week, and this frock I am wearing costs twenty-five. Really, Helen, you are the sweetest little goose I ever met. You live in London, but are not of it. You haven't grasped the first principle of social existence. If I dressed within my means, and never spent a sovereign until it was in my purse, I should not even earn the sovereign. I simply must mix with this crowd, whether I can afford it or not. "'But surely you are paid for your art, not as a mannequin. "'You are almost in the front rank of musical comedy. "'I have seen you occasionally at the theatre, "'and I thought you were the best dancer in the company. "'What about my singing? "'You have a very agreeable and well-trained voice.' "'I am afraid you are incorrigible. "'You ought to have said that I sang better than I danced, "'and the fib would have pleased me immensely.' We women like to hear ourselves praised for accomplishments we don't possess. No, my dear, rule art out of the cast and substitute advertisement. Did you notice a dowdy creature who was lunching with two men on your right? She wore a brown tussore silk and a turban. Well, she writes the pars about people in the daily journal. I'll bet you a pair of gloves that you will see something like this in tomorrow's paper. Lord Archie Beaumanoir entertained a party of friends at the Embankment Hotel yesterday. At the next table, Miss Millicent Jacques of the Wellington Theatre was lunching with a pretty girl whom I did not know. Miss Jacques wore an exquisite, etc., etc., Fill in full details of my personal appearance, and you have the complete paragraph. The public, the stupid, addle-headed public, fatten on that sort of thing, and it keeps me going far more effectively than my feeble attempts to warble a couple of songs 
which you could sing far better if only you made up your mind to come on the stage. But there, after such unwanted candor, I must have a smoke. You won't try a cigarette? Well, don't look so shocked. This isn't a church, you know. Spencer, who had listened with interest to Miss Jacques's outspoken views, suddenly awoke to the fact that he was playing the part of an eavesdropper. He had all an American chivalrous instincts where women were concerned, and his first impulse was to betake himself and his letters to his own room. Yet, when all was said and done, he was in a hotel. The girls were strangers, and likely to remain so. And it was their own affair if they chose to indulge in unguarded confidences. So he compromised with his scruples by pouring out a glass of water, replacing the decanter on its tray with some degree of noise. Then he struck an unnecessary match and applied it to his cigar before opening the first of the Denver letters. As his glance was momentarily diverted, he did not grasp the essential fact that neither of the pair was disturbed by his well-meant efforts. Millicent Jacques was lighting a cigarette, and this, to a woman, is an all-absorbing achievement, while her friend was so new to her palatial surroundings that she had not the least notion of the existence of another open floor just above the level of her eyes. "'I don't know how in the world you manage to exist,' went on the actress, tilting herself back in her chair to watch the smoke curling lazily upward. "'What was it you said the other day when we met? "'You are some sort of secretary and amanuensis to a scientist. "'Does that mean typewriting? "'And what is the science?' "'Professor von Eulenberg is a well-known man,' was the quiet reply. "'I type his essays and reports, it is true, "'but I also assist in his classification work, "'and it is very interesting.' "'What does he classify?' mostly beetles oh how horrid do you ever see any thousands i should find one enough if it is a fair question what does your professor pay you thirty shillings a week in his own way he is as poor as i am and do you mean to tell me that you can live in those nice rooms you took me to and dress decently on that sum I do, as a matter of fact, but I have a small pension, and I earn a little by writing tidbits of scientific gossip for the Firefly. Herr von Eulenberg helps. He translates interesting paragraphs from the foreign technical papers, and I jot them down. And by that means I pick up sufficient to buy an extra hat or wrap, and go to the theater or a concert. But I have to be careful, as my employer is absent each summer for two months. He goes abroad to hunt new specimens, and, of course, I am not paid then. Is he away now? Yes. And how do you pass your time? I write a good deal. Some day I hope to get a story accepted by one of the magazines. But it is so hard for a beginner to find an opening. Yet when I offered to give you a start in the chorus of the best theatre in London, a thing, mind you, that thousands of girls are aching for, you refused. I'm sorry, Millie, dear, but I am not cut out for the stage. It does not appeal to me. Hey ho, tastes differ. Stick to your beetles, then, and marry your professor. 
Helen laughed with a fresh joyousness that was good to hear. Herr von Eulenburg is blessed with an exceedingly stout wife and five very healthy children already, she cried. Then that settles it. You're mad, quite mad. Let us talk of something else. Do you ever have a holiday? Where are you going this year? I'm off to Champery when the theatre closes. Champery? In Switzerland, isn't it? Yes. Ah, that is the dream of my life. To see the everlasting snows, to climb those grand, solemn mountains, to cross the great passes that one reads of in the travel books. Now at last you have made me envious. Are you going alone? But of course that is a foolish question. You intend to join others from the theatre, no doubt. Well, something of the sort. I fear my enthusiasm will not carry me far on the lines that would appeal to you. I suppose you consider a short skirt, strong boots, a Tyrolese hat and an alpenstock to be a sufficient rig-out, whereas my mountaineering costumes will fill five large trunks and three hat-boxes. I'm afraid, Helen, we don't run on the same rails, as our American cousins say. There was a little pause. Millicent's words, apparently tossed lightly into the air after a smoke-spiral, had in them a touch of bitterness. It might be of self-analysis. Her guest seemed to take thought before she answered. Perhaps the divergence is mainly an environment, and I have always inclined to the more serious side of life. Even when we were together in Brussels. You? Serious? At Madame Berard's? I like that. Who was it that kicked the plaster off the dormitory wall higher than her head? Who put pepper in Signor Antonio's snuff-box? Spencer saw the outer waves of a flush on Helen's cheeks. This is exceedingly interesting, he thought. But I cannot even persuade myself that I ought to listen any longer. Yet if I rise now and walk away, they will know I heard every word. Nevertheless, he meant to go at the risk of their embarrassment, but he waited for Helen's reply. She laughed, and the ripple of her mirth was as musical as her voice, whereas many women, dowered with pleasantly modulated notes for ordinary conversation, should be careful never to indulge in laughter, which is less controllable and therefore natural. "'That is the worst of having a past,' she said. "'Let me put it, then, that entomology as a pursuit sternly represses frivolousness.' "'Does entomology mean beetles?' "'My dear, if you ask Herr von Eulenberg that question, "'he would sate your curiosity with page extracts from one of his books. "'He has written a whole volume to prove that the only true entoma, or insects, "'are condolopodia and hexapodia, which means... "'Cockroaches! Good gracious! "'To think of Helen Winton!' who once hit a Belgian boy very hard on the nose for being rude, wasting her life on such rubbish. And you actually seem to thrive on it. I do believe you are far happier than I am. At present I am envying you that trip to Champery. Why cannot some fairy godmother call in at number five Warburton Gardens tonight 
and wave over my awed head a wand that shall scatter sleeping-car tickets and banknotes galore, or at any rate sufficient thereof to take me to the Engadine and back. Ah, the Engadine! I am not going there this year, I think. Haven't you planned your tour yet? No, that is not exactly. Do you know that is one of my greatest pleasures? With a last year's Continental Bradshaw and a few tattered Baedeckers, I journey far afield. I know the times, the fairs, and the stopping places of all the main routes from Calais and Bologna. I could pass a creditable examination in most of the boat and train services by way of Ostead, Flushing, and the Hook of Holland. I assure you, Milly, when my ship does come home, or the glittering lady whom I have invoked deigns to visit my lodgings, I shall call a cab for Charing Cross or Victoria with the assurance of a seasoned traveller. For some reason Miss Jacques refused to share her friend's enthusiasm. "'You are easily pleased,' she said listlessly. "'For my part, after one shuddering glance at the channel, I try to deaden all sensation till I find myself dressing for dinner at the Ritz. I positively refuse to go beyond Paris the first day. "'Ah, bother! Here comes a man whom I wish to avoid. Let us be on the move before he sees us, which he cannot fail to do. Don't forget that I have a rehearsal at three. I haven't, really. But we must escape somehow.' Spencer, who had salved his conscience by endeavouring to read a technical letter on mining affairs, would be less than human if he did not lift his eyes then. It is odd how the sense of hearing, when left to its unfettered play by the absence of the disturbing influence of facial expressions, can discriminate in its analysis of the subtler emotions. He was quite sure that Miss Jacques was startled, even annoyed, by the appearance of some person whom she did not expect to meet, and he surveyed the new arrival critically, perhaps with latent hostility. He saw a corpulent, well-dressed man standing at the foot of the stairs and looking around the spacious room. Obviously he had not come from the restaurant. He carried his hat, gloves, and stick in his left hand. With his right hand he caressed his chin, and his glance wandered slowly over the little knots of people in the foyer. Beyond the fact that a large diamond sparkled on one of his plump fingers, and that his olive-tinted face was curiously opposed to the whiteness of the uplifted hand, he differed in no essential from the hundreds of spick-and-span idlers who might be encountered at that hour in the west end of London. He had the physique and bearing of a man athletic in his youth, but now overindulgent. An astute tailor had managed to conceal the two rounded curves of the fourth decade by fashioning his garments skillfully. His coat fitted like a skin across his shoulders, but hung loosely in front. The braid of a colored waistcoat was a marvel of suggestion in indicating a waist, and the same adept craftsmanship carried the eye in faultless lines to his verni boots. Judged by his profile, he was not ill-looking. His features were regular, the mouth and chin strong, the forehead slightly rounded, and the nose gave the merest hint of Semitic origin. Taken altogether, he had the style of a polished man of the world, and Spencer smiled at the sudden fancy that seized him. "'I am attending the first act of a little play,' he thought. Helen and Millicent rise and move to center stage. 
enter the conventional villain. Miss Jacques was not mistaken when she said that her acquaintance would surely see her. She and Helen Winton had not advanced a yard from their corner before the newcomer discovered them. He hastened to meet them with the aspect of one equally surprised and delighted. His manners were courtly and displayed great friendliness. But Spencer was quick to notice the air of interest with which his gaze rested on Helen. It was possible to see now that Millicent's unexpected friend had large, prominent, dark eyes, which lent animation and vivacity to a face otherwise heavy and coarse. It was impossible to hear all that was said as the trio stood in the middle of the room, and a couple of men passing up the stairs at the moment were talking loudly. But Spencer gathered that Millicent was explaining volubly how she and Miss Winton had dropped in here for luncheon by the merest chance, and was equally emphatic in the declaration that she was already overdue at the theatre. The man said something and glanced again at Helen. Evidently he asked for an introduction, which Miss Jacques gave with an affability that was eloquent of her powers as an actress. The unwished-for cavalier was not to be shaken off. He walked with them up the stairs and crossed the entrance hall. Spencer, stuffing his letters into a pocket, strolled that way too, and saw this pirate in a morning coat bear off both girls in a capacious motor-car. Not to be balked of the denouement of the little comedy in real life for which he had provided the audience, the American grabbed the hall porter. "'Say,' he said, "'do you know that gentleman?' "'Yes, sir. That is Mr. Mark Bower.' Spencer beamed on the man, as though he had just discovered that Mr. Mark Bower was his dearest friend. "'Well, now, if that isn't the queerest thing,' he said, "'is that Mark?' "'He's just gone round to the Wellington Theatre, I guess. How far is it from here?' "'Not a hundred yards, sir.' Off went Spencer without his hat. He had intended to follow in a cab— but a sprint would be more effective over such a short distance. He crossed the strand without heed to the traffic, turned to the right, and, to use his own phrase, butted into a policeman at the first corner. "'I'm on the hunt for the Wellington Theatre,' he explained. "'You needn't hunt much farther,' said the constable good-humouredly. "'There it is, little way up on the left.' At that instant Spencer saw Bower raise his hat to the two women. They hurried inside the theatre, and their escort turned to re-enter his motor. The American had learned what he wanted to know. Miss Jacques had shaken off her presumed admirer, and Miss Winton had aided and abetted her in the deed. "'You don't say,' he exclaimed, gazing at the building admiringly. "'It looks new. In fact, the whole street has a kind of San Francisco-after-the-fire appearance.' "'That's right, sir.' It's not so long since some of the worst slums in London were pulled down to make way for it. It's fine, but I'm rather stuck on antiquities. I've seen plenty of last year's palaces on the other side. Have a drink, will you, when time's up? The policeman glanced surreptitiously at the half-crown, which Spencer insinuated into his palm, and looked after the donor as he went back to the hotel. Well, I am jiggered, he said to himself. I've often heard tell of the way some Americans see London, but I never came across a chap who rushed up in his bare head and took a squint at any place in that fashion. He seemed to have his wits about him, too. 
there must be a screw loose somewhere. And indeed, Charles K. Spencer, had he paused to take stock of his behavior, must have admitted that it was, to say the least, erratic. But his imagination was fired. His sympathies were all aquiver with the thought that it lay within his power to share with a kin soul some small part of the good fortune that had fallen to his lot of late. Wants a fairy godmother, does she? he asked himself, and the quiet humor that gleamed in his face caused more than one passer-by to turn and watch him as he strode along the pavement. Well, I guess I'll play a character not hitherto heard of in the legitimate drama. What price the fairy godfather? I have a picture of myself in that role. Oh, my! See me twirl that wand! Helen, you shall climb those rocks. But I don't like your friend. I shan't send you to Champéry. No, Champéry's off the map for you. End of chapter 1